Blog Talk Radio. And good evening, everybody, and thank you for choosing King Jordan Radio for the 26th of March, 2014. This is King Jordan you're listening to. Today we'll be joined with Tom Mesereau, defense attorney for Michael Jackson. We will discuss the Oscar Pretorius trial, Wade Robson, and much, much more. Here to join us, ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome the one and only defense attorney. He is one of the best from California, represented Michael Jackson to victory. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Tom Mesereau. Good evening, Tom, and welcome to King Jordan Radio. How are you? Hi, Jordan. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Okay. Um, I want to start with the uh, Oscar Pajoyas trial. And uh, first, I want you to hear this clip, and then we'll take it from there. Valentine's Day 2013, marked not by romance, but by gunfire inside the home of Oscar Pistorius. Neighbors say they heard arguing. Pistorius says he heard an intruder. Whatever it was, it left Pistorius's girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp, dead, shot in the head, arm, and hip. So was it murder or a terrible mistake? Oscar Pistorius detailed his side of the story in a rare affidavit given to the court. Hours before the fatal shooting, Pistorius wrote, it had been a normal evening at home, a quiet dinner, TV and bed for him, yoga for her. He told the court hours after they went to bed, he was jolted awake, filled with fear after hearing a noise in the bathroom. Pistorius wrote in the affidavit, I grabbed my 9mm pistol from underneath my bed and screamed at the intruder to get out. Then, he explained, he fired shots at the toilet door and shouted to Riva to phone the police. To me, the instinctive thing, you hear sounds in the bathroom. If only to say, hey, honey, did you hear that? You do that first before you move to the bathroom to fire shots. According to the affidavit, Pistorius, who said he did not have his prosthetic legs on at the time of the shooting, found Steenkamp slumped over, adding, she died in my arms. Pistorius's agent got a frantic call at 4 a.m. Just had this voice of a girl frantically on the other side shouting, please, you have to rush to Pretoria, you have to come to Oscar's house. Prosecutors say this was no tragic mistake, that Pistorius calculated the perfect angle, aiming downward at the toilet. And there's this, a floor plan of the apartment, which the state says proves Pistorius could not have crossed the bedroom without realizing Steenkamp wasn't in bed. Photos leaked to the media by police show the bloody crime scene. Hi, Reva. This is shooting the December cover for FHM. Reva Steenkamp was just 29, a model and law school graduate. These exclusive photos are from happier times. Given to CNN from a source close to Pistorius, they are some of the last photos the couple had taken together. Reva Steenkamp's family still heartbroken. You sort of wake up in the morning expecting Reva still to give a phone call. Still, so many unanswered questions. Did Steenkamp really enter the bathroom unnoticed? And why lock the door? Was she trying to protect herself from Pistorius or from an intruder? And what about the bloodied cell phones inside the bathroom? How did they get there? 
Pistorius was charged with premeditated murder, but released on little more than $100,000 bond. He's been awaiting trial here at his uncle's multi-million dollar mansion. Oscar is uh, like we all are, still very traumatized. Some who know Pistorius tell CNN they're not surprised this happened. He would have a trip switch and uh, you know, he'd get violent and angry and he'd fight with people and he'd cause a lot of problems. And I mean, that's the incident with me and him was because he was drunk at a party and he started shouting and swearing on the phone. Pistorius's past will be on full display at trial. The Blade Runner himself is expected to testify, as are former girlfriends and forensic experts. Hello, 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 hello. And the cameras will be there. Well, Tom, uh, the prosecution has wrapped up its case, and Oscar is expected to testify. What do you think of the prosecution's case thus far? Well, remember, first of all, we're not in the courtroom. And unless you're actually in the courtroom, you're not seeing, hearing, and feeling everything. And right. the smallest amount of information, the smallest movement by a witness, the smallest inflection or change in someone's voice can make the difference between credibility and lack thereof. Uh, secondly, it's not a jury trial. It's a judge who will decide everything. And I don't know the judge, and I don't know what political baggage or what, what types of experiences this judge brings into the courtroom. I've heard the judge can pretty, be pretty tough on people charged with domestic violence, but I really don't know very much. So with those caveats, uh, let me also remind you that a, a case is not over until it's over. And the prosecution, from what I've heard and seen, has put on a very compelling case. But we haven't heard the defense really yet. You've seen some cross-examination where they've certainly exposed some problems with the forensic team that the police sent into the house. There's been a lot of, um, there was a fair amount of bungling, a fair amount of mistakes, a fair amount of sloppy work. Um, however, as I've said before when asked, um, the problems with the forensics uh, that I'm aware of are less significant in this case than cases like, say, O.J. Simpson or Robert Blake. In O.J. Simpson and Robert Blake, the defense was saying, our client did not do the shooting, our client did not kill anyone, our client is not guilty of ever having a gun and firing, or, or in the case of Simpson, a knife. But in this case, it's not a whodunit. Uh, the defense admits that Pistorius fired the gun and that Pistorius, in, in fact, killed her. The question is, you know, what was he thinking? What were his intentions? Why did he do what he did? Did he really think an intruder was there, or is that just an excuse um, uh, to try and cover up which, what really was, a, at, at best, a reckless act by someone who has a history of being very impulsive, uh, someone who's been very impulsive with guns? Uh, the prosecution has presented witnesses that suggest he has a terrible temper, um, and uh, perhaps an anger problem. And um, also, they put on witnesses to say that he asked others to cover up uh, his firing a gun in a restaurant, as I, as I recall. So uh, I think they presented a very compelling story that this was not uh, someone who accidentally shot an intruder or someone they thought was an intruder. I think they've tried to really cover up what, what holes they think the defense is going to try and present in their case. In other words, they've tried to show who Pistorius is, 
his history with guns, his history with reckless behavior, his history with cover-up, his history with anger uh, and not getting his own way. And I think, you know, they've also showed, I gather they've had witnesses, more than one, I think maybe three, I, I can't remember exactly how many, to say that there was a lot of arguing going on and shouting going on before the, the shots were fired. So, you know, if you just look at the prosecution case alone, it seems very compelling, but there are two sides to every coin, and you've got to give the defense a chance to present their story and their witnesses, and you've got to give him a chance to testify. He may be a good witness. He may not be a good witness. Um, I think the prosecution is going to be unloading on him about what did he really do uh, with his friend in the restaurant when supposedly he shot a gun and asked the friend to take the rap for him. And we'll have to see how he responds to questions about those kinds of things. You know, it just takes one, one lie or one perceived lie by a defendant on the stand to turn things around and uh, result in a conviction. When, you, when a defendant takes the stand, uh, a lot is riding on that testimony. And juries, you know, don't like to be lied to and judges don't like to be lied to. And you assume that the defendant is going to be doing everything he or she can to try and defend themselves and protect themselves and explain themselves. But uh, one, you know, one slight, uh, it's one, one comment or one answer that just doesn't seem real or truthful can turn an entire trial around. So there's a lot still to come. But do I, do I think the prosecution put on a good case? Yes, I do. I thought it seemed very professional, very factual, very well organized. I thought the lawyers were very smart. But give the defense a chance. It's not over yet. And speaking of the defense, what is your take on Barry Rue, the defense uh, advocate over there? Uh, he's very, uh, very uh, feisty over there. What's your opinion from a one defense lawyer to another? I think he's very capable. I'm very impressed with him. I think he's a sharp guy. He's well prepared. Uh, he seems to have a real command of the uh, of the case and the subject matter. And he pointed out some real, uh, you know, embarrassing mistakes that the police made uh, when they were examining the uh, the crime scene, when they were trying to collect evidence. Uh, some of the mistakes were downright embarrassing. Again. The, the question about, with respect to the mistakes, is what is the significance of those mistakes? Okay, so some watches were missing, okay? What significance does the fact that watches were missing have on the prosecution's case? Uh, I'm not sure it'll have great significance, um, unless you tie it into lies by the police, if they've been told. Um, if they were sloppy with they're, they're moving some of the evidence from room to room or location to location. Again, the question is, what significance does that have? Pistorius admits he was the one that fired the gun. Uh, she clearly was shot in the bathroom behind a locked door. Um, you know, given those facts, I don't think some of the forensic mistakes are going to be as significant as they might be if it was a whodunit but they certainly don't help the prosecution and they don't help the police credibility. Um, we got to see what kind of a witness he is. He may be very good. He may, uh, he may not be. I don't know. But I do think the defense lawyer is a very good lawyer. Closed with those text, damning text messages where she actually says, I fear for you, end quote. So that could be very damning. 
that can be damning. And, you know, it, it's, it's one step at a time in presenting a case. I think the prosecution has gone bit by bit, step by step, inch by inch, in trying to present a recreation of what happened outside the courtroom. Trials are recreations of reality. You know, most of the people in the courtroom were not present uh, when the alleged crime occurred. So we have certain rules and procedures and methods by which we try as best we can to recreate what happened. And the law is always changing to make the process, you know, more responsible, more honest, um, more accurate. Uh, but we never reach total accuracy because, again, it's a recreation. But I think they've, uh, they've done a good job of making this guy look like he has a, a problem with his temper, a problem with his anger, um, uh, someone who's very impulsive, uh, fascinated with guns, reckless with guns. And I think they're trying to suggest that, uh, that they were having serious problems in the relationship and maybe he, um, maybe he flipped out. Um, we'll see. And the other side of the coin is though there is a high crime volume in South Africa, which I'm sure they're going to argue to defense when they get their turn, right? Well, I think so. I think we've been hearing about that uh, for quite a while, that there is a high crime rate, that this is a part of town which um, um, is victimized quite a bit uh, by people from other parts of town who want to commit robberies and burglaries. Um, and I'm sure they'll emphasize that. But I, I don't know the evidence that well, but uh, I think, wasn't there an alarm system at the house right. that, that might, might have triggered uh, an alarm if anyone was trying to get in? Um, I thought I heard something about that, but again, I'm not in the courtroom. But you've got to wait till the entire case has come in. You can't just score it like a baseball game, you know, three to one at the bottom of the third. You don't do it that way. <laughs> everything connects with everything else. You know, right. I've, I've been in enough high-profile cases where people are trying to score it like a baseball game. It just doesn't work that way. And uh, it seems to me, if you watch the defense attorney, he gets the question and question and question where here in the U.S. you wouldn't get to talk to a witness in that manner, like in, in so many words. You know what I'm talking about? Well, it depends. You know, different lawyers have different styles of cross-examination, and, and lawyers have different purposes for cross-examination. The public often thinks that, you know, when a cross-examiner asks a question, that uh, they're looking for a particular answer. You know, the reality is sometimes when a good cross-examiner asks a question, they don't care what the answer is. They're trying to tell a story in their question. So there are different ways to approach cross-examination. There are different methods of cross-examination and different purposes. But what little I've seen of him, I thought he was very sharp and very incisive and um, uh, very quick, and I thought he was a very impressive lawyer, speaking of the uh, defense lawyer. Right, but do you see them getting away with stuff where the, uh, the state would say, objection, objection, objection? You know, he said a lot, like he's almost, you know, going through so many sentences to the witnesses. Now, what if I, what if, what if this happened? What if this happened? What if, like, so many things that would be objected here in America are not yes. objected to there in the States over yes. there, South Africa? It doesn't, my impression of what I've seen is, is that a lot more is allowed into the courtroom uh, in this legal system than, than in your typical American courtroom. I agree with you. 
there's a lot of objecting in, a, in American courtrooms. Uh, a lot of material is kept out uh, pre-trial. You make what is called a motion in limine to ask the judge to preclude the other side getting into certain areas, and the reasons may be that uh, they're irrelevant or, or they're just too prejudicial to be uh, to result in a fair trial if they come in. Um, a lot of skirmishing goes on in American courtrooms where people try to keep out certain information and certain evidence. It does appear that they're much more liberal uh, in this legal system. The other interesting thing, however, is um, if Pistorius is going to testify, he has to be the defense's first witness. In America, very typically, if the defendant testifies, the defendant is the last witness the defense puts on. And I have to right. assume they're for doing that is they don't want him to be affected by other defense witnesses. I would think that's the reason. But um, in, in, in this respect, it's a much tighter uh, type of process than we have here. Um, uh, but at any rate, it's a, it's, a, it's a fascinating trial. It's a horrible tragedy what happened for everybody. Yes. His family seems devastated, and this this poor woman had every everything in front of her. I mean, she was she was beautiful, she was successful, she was popular, she was a lawyer. I mean, what a what a horrible tragedy. Uh, but nevertheless, um, again, I don't know what's going through the judge's mind. It's a jury of one, not a jury of twelve, and there are big differences between the two. The fact that she's on nationwide television all around the world, do you think that's uh, going to make a factor in her uh, deliberating? You would hope not, um, but it could. Cameras can have a very strong effect on the participants uh, in a televised trial. There's no question about that. You sort of started hoping it won't, uh, and I'm sure the judge you know, feels as if she's behaving uh, in the way she, you know, would under any set of circumstances, especially without cameras in the courtroom. But my experience is human beings are affected by that camera, and human beings are affected by knowing that, uh, you know, all over the world uh, their face is being seen uh, on television. Uh, hopefully it will not distract her from doing her job effectively, and hopefully she's paying very close attention to everything that happens in the trial. Uh, and I've not seen her exhibit anything that suggests she's putting on any kind of an act or any kind of a uh, uh, different pose or posture than she normally would. Um, but you always got to be careful with cameras. You just do. They serve a very good public function in that they help educate the public as to what our legal system is about. The problem is witnesses can watch TV and see what other witnesses said. That can affect them. Um, and people can, you know, want to build careers out of being on television. So all of this is a temptation that has to be resisted if the system's going to work properly. But every time the public watches a trial, I think the public is better off. They learn a lot about uh, just what happens in a courtroom. They learn a lot about the law. They learn a lot about procedure. And um, there's a benefit to that, for sure. Well, you didn't want cameras in uh, your trial in 2005 with Michael Jackson, right? That's correct. Um, the prior lawyer who I replaced, uh, Garagos, had wanted cameras. And the judge had said there would not be cameras. Garagos had appealed that ruling. And when I got in as lead counsel, I dismissed that appeal. I did not want cameras in the courtroom. I did not want witnesses seeing what other witnesses were saying. 
I thought there was a big enough circus uh, already um, yeah, in that case. Uh, I thought having cameras in the courtroom could make it even worse. And uh, I wouldn't change anything that happened because Michael was acquitted of 10 felonies and four misdemeanors. It was a clean slate uh, of acquittals. In my opinion, he was fully vindicated. So I wouldn't change a fleck of dust on the table if, uh, if asked. I mean, everything came together right, and he walked out of there a free man. Um, but I did make a strategic decision that we'd, uh, we'd have a better, better shot at an acquittal if cameras weren't in the courtroom. And I think that things were a little bit more flexible with the judge because there wasn't a camera in the courtroom. I think the parties were a little more at ease because there was not a camera in the courtroom. And I just, uh, I just felt uh, we would look more professional and uh, we'd have a better shot at getting the result we wanted. And uh, things turned out fine. But well, as we learned from the outside, uh, the reporting was devastatingly uh, pro-prosecution uh, with 95% of the people, right? Well, the reporting was a disaster. Um, uh, the, the, the media was extremely biased against the defense. The media was interested in only one thing, you know, revenue and ratings. And they were trying to spin uh, the result they wanted with, in my opinion, just very, very, you know, jaded, stilted, dishonest reporting. But remember, the jury was in the, court, in the courtroom. The jury was there, you know, from start to finish. They saw and heard everything. Uh, they were not just being subjected to improper reporting or dishonest reporting or biased reporting. And the most important people in that courtroom were the 12 jurors and the judge. They were the ones I was most concerned about. And also remember that American juries, in my opinion, really try to do the right thing. They're under oath to follow the, the, the judge's instructions. They're under oath to consider all of the evidence um, and to honestly and professionally deliberate with each other in the jury room. And American juries, particularly in big cases, have a history of going against the media. You know, the media thought O.J. Simpson would be convicted. He was acquitted. They thought Robert Blake would be convicted. He was acquitted. They thought Michael Jackson would be convicted. He was acquitted. So even though the media has a lot of influence in society, I don't think they're as influential with juries as they would like to believe. Absolutely. Okay, I was asked to uh, bring up the uh, documentary that Ms. Gedrick Dana uh, sent to you, and if you saw it, and, and if so, what did you think of it? You know, I did see it. Uh, she was kind enough to send it to me, and I found it very uh, informative and really appreciated the work she did. Remember, I was in the courtroom during that trial. Um, you know, I didn't spend much time outside. We would arrive. Uh, we would park in a designated area. Uh, we would walk into the courtroom, bring our boxes and materials. We'd be in trial all day, and then we would leave and go back to, uh, to where we were living and where we were preparing for the next day. So I really wasn't seeing a lot that went on outside. Uh, this documentary gave me a lot of information, a lot of insight, uh, into what was happening outside the courtroom, um, who was there, uh, and what they were doing, and what they were saying, what conflicts there were. I thought it was a very valuable documentary, and I thought it was done in a very sensitive, uh, professional way, 
And I thought uh, that uh, Ms. Gittrick did a wonderful job with it. So I'm very grateful she sent it to him. Yes, yeah, a lot of things uh, went crazy over there with uh, some of the people out there uh, doing some weird things, to say the least. Anyway, uh, Wade Robson, last month, uh, through his attorney, says he wants a list of every boy uh, MJ allegedly molested. That came out via TMZ uh, last month. Your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I've already been very vocal about what I think about what Wade is saying. I mean, um, I was shocked when he came out and, you know, completely changed his position on Michael Jackson. Uh, as you know, uh, when I decided to put on a defense case in Michael Jackson's trial, um, which some people suggested I not to, they thought the cross-examination had been so effective of, pros- of really? prosecution witnesses that maybe there actually, was a reason for that. Huh? Are you actually considering not putting on a case? Well, yeah, because um, I was not considering it really. I mean, I had to think about it. But a lot of people, you know, thought that the cross-examination of prosecution witnesses was so effective and their, their witnesses looked so bad, particularly the Arvizo family, that maybe we should just, you know, just rest um, and get this thing to the jury as fast as possible. I thought hard, long and hard about it, and uh, while I felt there would not be a conviction at that point, I was not confident that we would get acquittals on every single count. And I also thought that if we, if we hung on any particular count, the prosecution would probably retry the case and put Michael through another trial. So I decided to go for broke and try and, uh, try and tell our side through our witnesses and go for an acquittal on every single charge. And that's what happened. So if you decide to put on a defense case, which, again, you don't have to do, um, you want to start strong and you want to end strong. If you look at the books on trial practice, you will see that there's always this advice, you know, if you have, weak, you know, if you have witnesses who aren't as strong as other witnesses, the general advice is put them on in the middle of your case, not the beginning or the end. Start with a bang and end with a bang. And I started with Wade Robson and I ended with Chris Tucker. And I considered them to be two of our strongest witnesses. And I met with Wade, and he was a very intelligent, very articulate, uh, very poised, uh, seemed to be a very mature guy um, uh, for a very nice family. And he was very, very strong in his opinions that nothing had ever happened to him and that these allegations were ridiculous. So and I started time, how old with the paper. Pardon me? At this at this point in his life, how old is he? I don't know. I really don't. I really haven't thought about it. I just don't know. He's 32 now, so I guess around okay, 20. Well, the trial was nine years ago. Um, and Wade was very powerful for us. You know, he was adamant that Michael Jackson never, you know, sexually abused him, never assaulted him, never improperly touched him. Uh, the prosecution went after him tooth and nail on cross-examination, and he would not budge. And he was a very strong witness for us. And then I also called, as I, re- I called his mother and his sister, and they were also very strong witnesses for us. So when he came out, you know, in the last year, I guess it was, and changed the story, I was in shock. I really was. Um, 
I think it's tragic that this case is going on. Um, I sort of feel that Michael Jackson is being victimized in death the way he was when he was alive. That's just my opinion. And um, the way Wade Robson testified in the criminal trial um, was just so powerful for Michael Jackson, and he seemed so confident in what he was saying and so intelligent. He's a very bright young man that uh, I just find it, you know, just hard to believe that this case is going forward. But as far, as far as the document request goes, I'm not surprised as a lawyer, you know, in a civil case like this, you have pretrial discovery, they call it, and each side will send very broad requests to the other side uh, regarding documents. So I'm not surprised as a lawyer that they made a request like this. I'm just not. And I think the defense will probably resist and will probably get before a judge and a judge will decide, you know, whether it's a proper request or not. Uh, that would be my guess. But uh, I'm not surprised by, by that kind of a request. And uh, you, uh, you assume to be a witness, right? If it goes to trial, I, I mean, I haven't really talked to um, talked to the estate or the defense about it, but I would think there's a good chance because I spoke to him before trial, and then I called him as a witness at trial. Um, so certainly, there's a possibility somebody may call me as a witness, and I would I think it would be the defense, not the prosecution. But nobody has spoken to me about it. Okay. Let's go out to the phones. Uh, 787, please state your name and where you're calling from. You're on the phone with Tom Bezro. 787. Hello. Hello. Um, my name is Daniel. Um, I called uh, back in January. I don't know if you folks remember me. But first, uh, just want to say I hope you're feeling better, Jordan. I understand you were sick. And, um, again, Thanks. it's nice to speak to you again, Tom. It's an honor as usual. Um, my question is, um, well, as, uh, since you folks are talking about Wade Robson, um, a lot of people seem to maybe not gloss over, but don't acknowledge that Wade's mother and sister testified very adamantly in Michael's defense as well. And the reason why I bring that up is because looking over Wade's legal uh, maneuvers in his um, suit. He's um, targeting MJJ Productions and one other company of Michael's, the ones that were behind his, you know, the production of his videos and um, things of that nature. And he's um, targeting 49, 47 something people unnamed, but that but they're um, tied in with those entities, like you know workers, I assume. And the premise is he's going after all these people, all these entities, because he says they should have been watching out for him and keeping him safe. But the problem with that is he um, he wants to play the blame game and all these other people. And yet, if there was any shred of truth to what he's saying now, I would think it would make some sort of logical sense that would he not implicate his mother in some way? Because Joy Robson, his mother, she um, she's the one that encouraged Michael and Wade's friendship. You know, she and Chantal Robson, they were both friends with Michael as well. 
and they were around Michael Inwood. <coughs> Forgive me, my throat's a little dry. But they were around Michael and Wade for so many years, including the seven years that Wade is trying to say yet he was abused. And it makes no sense because um, in 1993, this is when the Jordan Chandler case happened. At that time, the Robsons and Michael, they were friends. Now, you would assume that any responsible parent would look at this person who's been accused of child molestation and then see how they're close to their child. And I would, you would think that a person would say, well, maybe I need to reassess this relationship. You know, maybe I shouldn't let my child be around a person who's being accused of this if I don't know 100% sure that this person is innocent or not. And what we saw is that the Robsons continued to associate with Michael and Joy Chantal and Chantal in addition to Wade, defending Michael in a deposition in 93. They went out of their way to defend him. And then that continued for the years. You know, they would say a few nice things. And then it comes in 2005 where they also testified. And, you know, and you, were, you, you, know, you saw that. You saw them, and they were very adamant, just like Wade was. Now, I'm wondering, what... Um, what sort of sense does it, does it make that Wade would want to blame um, all these other people and not the person who would actually be most responsible because, you know, Wade was a minor at the time? Wouldn't um, Joy Robson have had some responsibility? And does the fact that Wade's legal maneuvers seem more, more um, tailored to get a big paycheck, does that, you know, doesn't that help kind of like show what his motives really are? Well, I mean, I never met Wade or his mother or his sister before I became Michael Jackson's lead defense counsel in his criminal case. So I met them for the first time in the context of of putting on a defense. And I, I didn't know them previously. I never had had conversations with them before I got into the case. And as I said before, they were very strong witnesses for Michael, uh, not just on the witness stand under oath, but in prior discussion. They seemed like very strong supporters of Michael. They, they had traveled with him, and they had nothing but nice things to say. So it was shocking for me to hear that Wade had come out and tried to disavow a lot of the things he had said previously. I don't really know what his theory is. Um, Initially, I was told there was a repressed memory theory, uh, but then, as I recall, he got on the Today Show and somehow um, debunked that. Now, are they saying he was suffering from repressed memory? Are they saying he was brainwashed? Are they saying that he just repressed everything or, um, you know, intentionally or unintentionally uh, just wouldn't face it? I don't know what their theory is. My understanding is that the defense has filed papers saying that this case was filed too late and the statute of limitations, as we call it in the law, has run and it's too late to pursue it. Um, But I don't know the status of any of that. I have not spoken to anyone with the estate about uh, what's going on in the case. Um, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, lawyers will represent clients and lawyers will often advise 
who to sue and who not to sue and for what reason. Uh, it, would, it would seem somewhat inconceivable that he would want to sue his mother and sister, um, who I understand now support him. That's what I was told. Um, yes, Chantal. Uh, she she um she made statements on her Facebook saying that you know basically that she she supports Wade. Yeah, as I say, I met these people. They were very nice. They were very intelligent. They were uh, really delightful people, and they were just so adamant in their support of Michael Jackson that um, uh, to to witness this about face is very very disturbing to me and very shocking. But you know, um, I don't know exactly what posture the case is in, other than that the, as I said before, the estate, uh, through its lawyers, are claiming the case was filed too late. Um, my understanding is the plaintiffs, uh, that, that's Mr. Robson, are seeking all kinds of documentation from the estate, um, as you typically do in a case like this. And that's about all I know. I haven't been involved. But I think it's tragic because uh, it just, first of all, Michael's not here to respond to any questions um, uh, that, that Wade's lawyers might uh, want to ask. And it just seems rather strange to have all of these prior statements that Wade made through the years uh, is supporting Michael Jackson and denying that he was ever improperly touched. Uh, and all of a sudden, a lawsuit is filed after Michael has passed away and can't respond to anything. I find the whole thing very strange, but um, exactly whether it's going to go to trial or not, I, I can't tell you. Well, I, well, well, that yeah, that brings me to another thing because Wade is saying he was brainwashed. Michael, um, what's the word? Rehearsed with him over the phone. Now, what, I was under the assumption that Michael's phones were being tapped during the trial. Is that true? That Michael's what, excuse me? That, that his phones were being tapped by the police during, throughout the investigation in 2003 up until the trial. Because Wade is trying to claim that Michael rehearsed with him over the phone and brainwashed him. Now, I, you know, I'm just wondering because... Wouldn't if if he was being investigated, if his if his conversations were being monitored, wouldn't they <coughs> have picked up on such um, calls? I'm just well, wondering I'm, if there's I'm any not a, You know, it's been a long time since I was digging through all the evidence, but uh, it was actually ten years ago I began to prepare the defense, and the trial uh, took place nine years ago. I don't recall any wiretaps. Um, and I don't recall any recordings of any, you know, anything that sounded like what you just described. And the idea that you could brainwash someone over the phone sounds absurd to me, particularly someone <laughs> as important and as articulate as, as Wade Robson. And I, I found him to be a very bright young man, very intelligent, very talented, very personable. Um, the idea that you could suddenly brainwash him over the phone, if that's what he's claiming, is, in my opinion, utterly ridiculous. Well, he's trying to say he was brainwashed for all these years, but it's still, and that's why I brought up Chantal Robson and Joy Robson, because they were there throughout the entirety of Wade and Michael's relationship. You know, if something, if something had happened, you would think they would have noticed it, and especially given the fact that Michael was accused in 93, I would have, you know, any logical person would think that would give a parent an incentive to re-evaluate 
the relationship between a person accused of child molestation and their child. And look at that. And Joy continued to defend Michael and continue, <coughs> sorry, and continue to let Wade spend time with him, you know? So I don't see, just, you know, that's just, that's just another way that this case just really makes no sense to me. It makes no sense to me either, other than uh, uh, as a possible grab for money. That's the only, you know, conclusion I can reach from everything that I've been uh, been told about the case. Uh, it seems to be a um, an effort to either get a good settlement from the estate or win a judgment against the estate. I can't think of any other reason for doing this. Um, but I, you know, I have not talked to Mr. Robson. I have not talked to his attorney. And uh, I don't know what explanation they're giving for all of this. But I just find it absurd. Okay, somebody writes in, seriously, question mark. I'm sorry, but this seems to go too far. If he was lying as a child on this, and on a stand, no less, in a child molestation case for another boy and said, Michael never molested me, how in the world could he suffer from repressed memories? I mean, wouldn't it? Wouldn't he remember being molested and how awful it was for him to lie? Question mark. It doesn't make any sense to me, and if it doesn't make any sense, it usually isn't true. It's from a uh, writer. Well, remember, remember. You know, I don't have the transcript handy, nor have I looked at it for many years. But the prosecutor really gave him a grilling on cross examination. And it's not just, you know, what he said on direct examination in response to my questions, but this prosecutor went after him to the nail. And the prosecutor was a very, very experienced, very smart, uh, very aggressive, very talented lawyer. And he was really ripping into whether or not, you know, as I recall, he was really whipping in to whether or not Wade was covering up or, or Wade wasn't telling the truth or whatever. And... Wade stood his ground uh, with with extraordinary, you know, firmness, um, and and I think I think he used the word ridiculous, as I recall, when they tried to suggest that he had been improperly touched by Michael. I'd have to go back at the transcript, but I believe he used that word, uh, suggesting that he, just even even any remote idea that he would that he experienced any type of improper touching by Michael was, was just ridiculous and absurd. I thought he was a very good witness for us. And um, it's just, uh, he made other statements too. I was interviewed at Entertainment Tonight uh, after Wade made his recent allegations and before they interviewed me, they showed me one of his statements um, outside of the courtroom that pretty much echoed what he had said in the courtroom which was that, you know, Michael never, never improperly touched me at any time. So, um, again, I don't know what type of psychological or psychiatric theory they're claiming uh, was there. Are they, is he saying he lied to cover up? Is he saying that he was brainwashed? Is he saying he was in denial? Is he saying that he had um, some type of psychiatric disorder? I just don't know. Seems to be saying a lot uh but it's not adding up to uh, the truth. So we'll see. Let's go over to area code 806. Please state your name and where you're calling from, 806. 
Hello, it's me, Christy Miller, again. Hello, Mr. Mizzero. We spoke in January as well as 2013 August. Uh-huh. In case you have trouble remembering me. Do I remember you? Yes, I do. Yeah. Nice Hi. So, um, I have this time around. I have a couple of questions in regards to Dr. David Adams' um, testimony in the AEG trial, where it was revealed that even when Michael was given just a small dose of propofol, not as ridiculous as what. Conrad Murray was doing, his tongue would relax and block the airway, and it was described as abnormally large. So that added to the problem. And so my questions are, um, do you believe that um, it's possible that Michael's tongue blocking his air passage could have been one of contributing factors to his death, especially considering that, you know, it was unlikely that Conrad Murray was watching him, and also, does it surprise you that he didn't die sooner? When you consider how often he was on the verge of suffocating to death. Well, look, you have to understand that um, during the time I was involved with Michael Jackson on a daily basis, um, as I've said before, he was always lucid, he was always articulate, he was always very cooperative very kind, very considerate. He was a delightful client to deal with. And the only time that I got alarmed uh, was the verdict day. He just looked horrible as he walked into court. He looked just terrified. He looked frozen. Um, um, He just looked awful. And um, even when it was over, he looked so weary, so devastated by this process uh, as he walked out of the courtroom. Uh, then I went to Neverland and saw him, and he, he appeared much better, but he clearly was exhausted. His children were comforting him. And the point I'm making is I never saw him take any medication. Uh, he never told me he was taking medication. And I didn't know what propofol was. Nobody during the time I defended Michael Jackson ever mentioned the word propofol. Um, when he passed away and it became more and more public what propofol is and what its appropriate uses are and what its appropriate uses are not, Um, and that it's it's a very dangerous, powerful anesthetic that's not supposed to be in the home and not supposed to be used for insomnia or to cure or remedy a sleep disorder. Um, uh, Then we began to learn how many doctors apparently had, uh, you know, given him propofol or or recommended propofol, um, I just had this feeling that, you know, if if he weren't Michael Jackson, nobody would have given him this stuff. I mean, if I have a sleep disorder and I go to a physician, I don't think anybody's going to suggest I try propofol. But I think uh, in the world of Michael Jackson, so many people were desperate to get close to him and get into business with him and uh, make him feel good, that people were often willing to compromise whatever principles they had. Now, you've asked a medical question that I can't answer about him, possibly his tongue, possibly choking him or whatever. I can't really answer that. 
And by the way, I, I was not able to attend the AEG trial because I was on the witness list. I was never called, but I was on the plaintiff's witness list, and witnesses were not allowed to sit in the courtroom. Um, so I did not see this doctor testify. But the only thing I can just tell you is that uh, the idea that people were giving him propofol to sleep, I just find absurd and tragic. And it's just another example of a famous celebrity, uh, Michael Jackson, Elvis Presley, Marilyn Monroe, you know, famous people who pay a terrible price for their fame. And, and one of the prices they pay is that people want to give them whatever they think will make them feel good. And principles become compromised, uh, values are thrown out the window. And uh, the more I think about poor Michael just with this propofol rigged up in his room uh, being given to him, this dangerous anesthetic that requires constant monitoring, con you know, the, the proper machinery for breathing, for heart rate, etc. The more I think about that, just the more tragic and the more just horrible it just sounds to me. I mean, how many of us never heard about what propofol until, you know, we used it when we had certain medical procedures, but nobody really knew what it was, and we always left it up to our anesthesiologist to monitor us and, and, and handle things properly. And every anesthesiologist I've talked to, and I've talked to a number, have said that this is a wonderful drug, that it, it, it's just a, a, a very valuable, important drug for surgery that people uh, go through surgery uh, without pain, that they wake up without, you know, nausea, without uh, their, their mind being fogged out like some other medications that have been used through the years will do. And it was just thoroughly abused in this sense. Um, apparently, as, as you remember, the testimony in the, in the AEG trial, a little bit I saw on TV, was that um, Michael's body was wasting away because while he had the feeling that he had slept, it was just illusory. It was an illusion of sleep, and his body was wasting away. And I find the whole thing just so horrid that a, any physician would treat him this way just to ingratiate themselves with him and just to be involved with him and just to be paid and just to be famous. It's, uh, it's really tragic. I don't know if I really answered your question, but I've done my best. Yes, well, um, when I heard about this stuff with Dr. David Adams, I was like, you know, I mean, because I had, I had understood that he, it was, it was, it was him who Michael wanted, not Conrad Murray, because it's obvious that Dr. David Adams knew what he was doing, and and it's just Conrad Murray seemed kind of pushy about wanting to be Michael's only doctor. Mm -hmm. but, but, I mean, why would anyone give him propofol sleep? Give him propofol, you know, to do a surgery under, you know, normal and professional conditions? I understand that. But to put him to sleep, um, to treat insomnia, uh, it's just, it's, just uh, it's horrible to think about. And I can't imagine what poor Michael was feeling like you know, those last few years of his life, if he, in fact, was, was using propofol all the time. I can't imagine what he felt like because his body apparently was wasting away and he was not getting the sleep that he thought he had gotten. And apparently the more you use this to sleep, the more dependent you get on it and the less effective other types of proper medication are. So I just don't understand why this very kind, nice human being was treated this way. It's just, uh, it's horrible. Okay, thank you. Let's go over to area code 
661, please state your name and where you're calling from. 661, you're next. Hello? Yes, yeah, 661. This is Dina Gedrick. I'm calling from Santa Barbara. I'm the filmmaker of The Trials of Michael Jackson. And I wanted to thank Mr. Mesero for his kind words about the film and for actually taking the time to watch it and, you know, introduce me to Jordan and help, you know, you've done a lot. So I thank you so much. Well, so thank you for a uh, wonderful uh, job you did in putting that together. I know it was a very difficult project, and I think you indicated you didn't have an enormous amount of funding for it, um, but you did a very professional job, a very sensitive job, and I think the reality you presented is, um, is, is a great addition to the history of, the, um, of that trial. So I thoroughly enjoyed it and learned a lot from it, and I would encourage others to, uh, to watch it, and uh, thank you so much. You know, I also, too, I wanted to ask you, Tom, couple of, as I've been listening, a couple of questions that, you know, I haven't followed any of the Wade Robinson, but when I was listening to you speak, was it the statue of limitations that he could not be, you know, arrested for perjuring himself on trial, you know, at the trial? I mean, he perjured himself on the witness stand. Well, so is that- I mean... I don't think he did perjure himself. I think he told the truth. Uh, I think when he said that Michael... Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, 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 I agree. But now, is that... Excuse me, I should rephrase the question. So I agree with you, because I saw part of his testimony, and I totally agree with you. I believe he was telling the truth then 100%. But now I'm saying... He's come out and he said, okay, what I said back then was a lie. So legally, it is, this is the question, legally, is that considered perjury? Well, first of all, um, has he really come out and said that I lied? I, never, I haven't heard that. Uh, my understanding is he's come out and said uh, words to the effect that that was the reality that I was aware of at the time but I was either in denial or my memory was repressed or I'd been brainwashed or had a psychiatric or psychological infirmity. I don't know what his explanation is at the moment, but I've never heard him say, I lied on this day. Have you? Is that what he's saying? No, no, no. I'm just, I mean, I'm not even, I'm looking at it black and white. I mean, you could say repressed memory. You could say whatever. I mean, you're not using the word lying. Of course, he's not going to use that word, but I'm just saying, is there any, you know, legal ramifications for him for saying one thing? But I guess, so basically I guess what you're saying is if he says that he had repressed memory or he says he didn't remember, so everything that he said during the 2005 trial could have been a repressed memory, so therefore he's not technically lying. It's not perjury. So you can basically yeah, I, go I, and say... I, 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 you know, I haven't heard... Uh, you know, word for word, his explanation. 
I, I suspect his deposition's been taken or will be taken by the defense um, under oath. A deposition is, uh, is testimony given under oath outside of a courtroom. You have a court reporter, but the court reporter swears the witness in. So I have to assume that the, the defense okay. has probably taken his deposition Let's already. Let's go over to 818. Please state your name and where you're calling from, 818. It's your turn. Yeah, hi, how you guys doing tonight? Um, Mr. Mesereau, uh thank you for coming on. Uh, this is Gregory Sun from Los hey. Angeles, California. Try uh, and, 661. Please hello? state your name. Where you're calling from? 661. Hello? Yes, you're on live. You have a question or comment? Hi, I'm Sweden, and um, this is Tasha. I'm wondering if um, Thomas would please ask, I mean, please answer some questions for me about the 2005 trial, about those 20 binders that he always speaks about um, concerning Debbie Rowe uh, and why there were 20 binders of, I mean, from her and not from anyone else that I've heard of. Well, first of all, um, well, first of all, well, um, what I typically did with a witness, we got three documents uh, concerning that witness. And the documents could be police reports, they could be newspaper articles, they could be statements, they could be transcripts, whatever, whatever the document was. If it pertained to a witness, I wanted them all put together in chronological order. And in the case of Debbie Rowe, because she had been in divorce proceedings with Michael, and because she had been interviewed by the police a uh, number of occasions, when you took all of those documents and put them together in chronological order, the total was about 20 volumes. Now, some of the witnesses were five volumes, some were ten, some were one. It all depended on how many documents I had that pertained to that particular witness. I wanted every document present in chronological order, volume by volume by volume. And it turned out that because of the extensive documentation involving Debbie Rowe, she'd been his wife, had gone through divorce proceedings, there had been documents filed with the court, declarations about assets, declarations uh, where people stated what happened or didn't happen, um, lots of newspaper articles about the whole thing, statements made on TV, etc. I had a lot of material on her, and that's why I had approximately 20 volumes of documents for her. And some other witnesses I had, you know, close to 20 as well, but uh, some of them were far less. But that's why I had 20, 20 um, binders involving her. Okay, anything else? 818. Okay. Anything else? Six six one. Yeah, I was just wondering, um, because of Debbie Rowe's testimony, uh, you didn't call Lisa Marie Presley, which I've always assumed would if it hadn't gone the way it had. Could you please answer that? Uh, you're asking me why I didn't call Miss Presley? Yes. Can you shut your volume well, off, ma'am? Well, you have to remember, um, uh, 
we thought initially that the Michael Jackson criminal trial would go probably eight or nine months. And I cut down our witness list considerably when I made the decision that this case was going well for us and it would be to our advantage to get to the jury as soon as possible. So I shaved a number of months off our defense case. And uh, it was a strategic decision I made, and it turned out to be okay. But we had many more witnesses we were thinking of calling. But we just felt that between the cross-examination of prosecution witnesses and the effectiveness of our witnesses, that uh, the jury got the picture, they got the message, they knew the truth. We wanted to get them in that jury room deliberating sooner rather than later. So I radically cut back on the number of people we were going to call. And I'm assuming that's because um, she was also a, a friendly witness. In 2011, I think, you were speaking with Beth Harris in session, and uh, you said she, Michael had only nice things to say about Lisa. Is that still true? Wait, say that again. Michael said what? That you said Michael only had nice things to say about Lisa. Oh, absolutely. Any, any, discussion, I ever had, any discussion I ever had with Michael about Lisa, I always said were very nice things about her. I never heard one negative thing about her. Mm-hmm. My impression was that so Michael she had... Been, she would have been... Huh? She would have been a good witness. Well, I think she would have been a good winner. Also, keep in mind, there is a category of witness called character witnesses. And mm-hmm. did not call character witnesses in the case. Um, there were a number of people, like Stevie Wonder, for example, who were ready to come in and testify to Michael's reputation and good character. Um, but I decided not to call what are technically in the law called character witnesses. And um, uh, as I recall, Lisa Marie Presley didn't have too much to say about the underlying charges. Um, That's Mm -hmm. my recollection. But again, I'm repeating myself, Michael always had the nicest things to say about her. He really did. He thought very highly. Thank you very much, both both, um, Tom and Jordan, for always keeping it uh, factual and uh, Please, please continue answering the questions for the other callers. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Let's go over to area code 218. Please state your name and where you're calling from. 218, you're on live. Hi. Um, this is Lynette, and I'm calling from Minnesota. I've talked to you before. I have um, a question about the Arbizos, was there any evidence that they asked for money from Michael besides the money that they obviously got when they um, charged you know, all You know, I would have to go back and um, you know, this is nine years ago, um, you know, we were arguing that their purpose was to get money in a parallel civil case. That was our argument although they never filed a parallel civil case. Uh, As I recall, there was some evidence that the district attorney of Santa Barbara, Mr. Stedden, had uh, made a statement that he didn't want them filing a civil case. Um, But certainly our argument was that all of this was about money. 
and our argument was that if there were a criminal conviction, uh, it would pave the way for a large civil settlement. In other words, if, if Michael were proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, you would take the judgment of conviction, walk it over to a civil courtroom, file it, and liability would already be established because proof beyond a reasonable doubt in a criminal case is a much higher standard of proof than what you would need in a civil case, which is preponderance of the evidence. It's a, it's a weaker standard, a lighter standard, an easier thing to prove. So we were always arguing this was about money. You're asking me, do I recall specifically whether the Arvizos asked for money? I don't recall specifically. Uh, clearly, Michael was spending money on them, but do I recall a specific request? At the moment, I just don't. Um, I just don't recall. Okay. Um, because there was um, a comment made by Mark Garagos to uh, Tom Snedden that they had asked for money. Is that true? Well, I mean, it's possible. I, I, don't, rem I don't recall a specific instance of that. That doesn't mean it okay. didn't happen. Um, okay. And certainly they were spending a lot of time at Neverland and a lot of time with Michael. Um, they flew to Florida with him. He certainly was spending money on them. Do I recall a specific request? The answer is right now I do not. Okay. It doesn't, well, it doesn't mean there wasn't one, but I just don't recall it. Okay. All right. Thanks. Okay. Thanks for the call. Okay. Let's go over to uh, caller Kelly. Kelly, you're on with Tom Mizero. Hello? Good evening. You're on live. Uh, you can hear me. I'm using yeah. Skype for the first time, so I'm quite surprised it's working. This is Maestro Fleur calling, and I just wanted to give Tom an update on some very positive things going on in the fan community. I'm completely okay. changing the subject. This is not about anything legal. <laughs> okay. Uh, I wanted to let you know that a fan group has put together a National Children's Day holiday, and we have started to promote it. Uh, we have the support of President Obama, and it also coincides with the um, UN's proclamation of November 20th. So now we have an international child's holiday as well. And it's all for Michael in his name. And we're going to start promoting it probably in July or August. We're going to have a group of fans put together flyers and get them in the newspapers and start to really push this out. Uh, the well, other thing we've done is we have started a new online fan magazine. It's called What's Really Going On. And our main focus as a magazine is the fan contribution in supporting Michael's legacy. So what we're doing is we're going out and we're researching different fan groups and we're featuring them in articles in the magazine. Well, that's wonderful. Congratulations. Yeah, and I just kind of wanted to bring all of that out so that the other fans can hear that this is going on. We're trying to pull the fan base back together in a positive light. 
Mm-hmm. Well, that's wonderful. Keep up the good work. I'm well, very and impressed. So, yeah, I just want you to know that there are fans out here who are trying to be positive and support in love. Well, that's terrific. Keep up the good work. Congratulations. It's been an honor talking with you. Same here with you. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Well, that was nice. Michael did always want a uh, children's day. Isn't that correct, Tom? Yeah, he wanted an international children's day. Um, And he was working very hard to accomplish that. He wanted there to be a particular day where people all over the world would stop what they were doing and just think about how special and valuable their children were. And um, uh, he took that very, very seriously. And uh, I'm very happy to hear what the fans are doing. Absolutely. Okay, we got a private number. Private number, where you're calling from, and what's your name? Okay. Uh, before we get out of here, Tom, I wanted to uh, talk about Judge Joe Brown in the news. I wanted you to hear his response. Um, let's take a listen to this, and I want to get your commentary on the other side. They said that you mentioned that this was dirty politics when you got. Oh yeah. I, I was wondering if it you could, you know, emphasize. I'll tell you what that is. Yeah. I'm running district attorney, and my opponent's nephew runs down there, works down there as a clerk. So I presented the thing. I demanded that this this the charges against my client, which I would have done if I'd been a judge. And in the 40 years I've been practicing in that place. Every single time I have done it, uh, it was dismissed. But I recall the conversation he was having with my opponent's nephew. So he refused to, and then he threatened to find me in contempt. I said, well, you know, under Tennessee law, you can't do anything but find me. So here, uh, $10, <laughs> that's what the usual is. And so you think okay, you and then think he, I, you'll get jail time. I said, well, go for it. By the way, I'm reporting you to the court of the judiciary. And he just got disciplined by them for doing the same thing not that long ago. To make a long story short, he decides to give me five days, not half hour passes before five different judges order me released, but they can't get me released because juvenile court, thanks to him, falsified the documents so that it would reflect that I was in there for child support violations. So everybody was trying to find where my paperwork was in the system so I could be released. And see, here's the thing. They're running very scared. I've got a lot of support in that area. And when you were arrested yesterday, there was a photo put up of Martin Luther King. And I think what somebody has told me this morning is the way they understood it, it was supposed to be I did nothing to get arrested but stand up for what was right, just like Martin Luther King. Did you get to eat any meals while you were in jail? I wasn't eating that. They told me, I know some of the people that had me in there, the senior ones were former clients. And by the way, I signed autographs and shook hands with the inmates, <laughs> visitors, and signed autographs and took pictures with the deputy jailers. That's great. But don't eat it because they privatized it. And privatizing the whole thing is bad. So we've had people just left and right going to the hospital with all sorts of food poisoning and tomain poisoning. Don't eat it. 
I was about, still am about justice. And if it's the only thing standing between me, or not me, between my client and an unjust resolution, unjust resolution is me. And, you know, I'm secondary. Tom Mizzero, what's your thoughts on the Honorable Judge Joe Brown? Well, you know, I've always liked uh, Judge Brown. Um, uh, I thought he was quite a character on television. He was very intelligent, very decisive, very opinionated. Um, It was a show, of course. Um, But as far as what happened in the courtroom goes, you know, I'm not going to judge him. Um, He's very opinionated, very smart. Um, He's in another position now. He was appearing as a lawyer and not a judge. And um, he seems to be the kind of person who will stand up for principle, even if it lands him in jail. And uh, I only saw bits and pieces on the news about uh, what happened in the courtroom. And it didn't look to me like the kind of behavior that merited, you know, five days in jail. It really didn't. But that's, it's not my prerogative. It's, uh, it's the prerogative of the judge who held him in contempt. But clearly, um, he, uh, he's not someone who's, uh, who's going to back down from uh, his beliefs, and he's not someone who's going to you know, easily be chastised by anybody uh, if it's inappropriate in his mind. Uh, but he may be having trouble adjusting to the fact that he's now a lawyer appearing before a judge as opposed to a judge himself. Absolutely. Uh, I also want to let you know, I did take a listen. Uh, I won't mention the person's name, uh, the, the show at least, but I did hear Diane Diamond talking on that show, and I've come to the conclusion that she is fully obsessed with Michael Jackson beyond the reasonable doubt. Well, that's always been my opinion. I mean, um, you know, I've seen much of her since the trial where she seemed to make a crusade out of seeing him convicted. And I'll never forget looking at her face as uh, she walked out of the courtroom after the acquittal. She looked pale as a ghost. She looked like she'd been run over by a freight train. Um, uh, You know, her coverage of the Michael Jackson criminal trial completely changed my opinion of Court TV. Uh, No one had been a bigger Court TV fan than me from the time it began. I thought Court TV was just a tremendous um, uh, channel and a tremendous opportunity to educate the public, including lawyers, as to what was happening in courtrooms throughout the country. And I found their reporters to be very intelligent, very experienced, very objective, very professional. And the demise of my uh, of court tv in my opinion uh began with her coverage of the michael jackson trial which i thought was very amateurish very unprofessional uh she clearly had an agenda and i know from some people i've talked to that there was quite a bit of discussion in court tv as to whether this kind of reporting was appropriate or not that's what i've been told i wasn't there um but at any rate, uh, after that trial, for a number of years, I refused to go on Court TV. And I, there were some people at Court TV that I had great respect for, like Beth Karras, for example, uh, Jamie, Jamie Floyd. Yeah. But I just wouldn't go on for a number of years. I was so upset at the way uh, their standards, uh, in my opinion, 
uh, sank to, to all-time lows in their coverage of the Michael Jackson case. But look, they didn't, uh, they didn't get what they wanted. Uh, they wanted a conviction. They wanted drama. They wanted to see Michael Jackson hauled off to jail. They wanted to see him returned into the courtroom uh, for sentencing, you know, wearing jailhouse overalls and without makeup and without his uh, normal clothing. They wanted to see him just destroyed and demeaned, um, and they didn't get their wish. So I'm not going to complain too much. That definitely didn't work out. But you're right, there is not enough uh, court television. The only game in town is HLN, and uh, you only get a couple hours of that, of course, uh, of uh, coverage. So uh, there really is not, there really needs to be a new home where uh, court lovers uh, could watch cases over and over. And uh, back to Diane Diamond, with so many cases in the world, why was she so upset, and why, to this day, still so upset with Michael Jackson? I don't Beyond know. Me. You know, I'll tell you what's a, what's a funny story. She covered uh, the Robert Blake case for Court TV, and the preliminary hearing in the Robert Blake case was televised by Court TV, and after it was over, and I was representing Robert Blake in that preliminary hearing, and I was examining prosecution witnesses, and after the three-week preliminary hearing was over, I watched some of the TV coverage, and she was extremely complimentary of me. And when I uh, agreed to be Michael Jackson's lead counsel, I did not know anything about her history with Michael Jackson. And when I appeared in Santa Maria the first time uh, as Michael Jackson's lawyer, I saw her, and I actually said hello without any understanding of her long history uh, with Michael Jackson and without any understanding of just what, uh, what the family and Michael thought about her. And I got a very strange feeling from her. Like She just looked at me in a strange way, and I, I was quite surprised because the only experience I had with her was her being very complimentary of my defense of Robert Blake. So I very quickly realized that uh, there was a history um, uh, in the Michael Jackson story, and it was not a very good one as far as she was concerned, and of course she was not someone uh, I ever said another word to again. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, what's amazing is that she still goes on about it, and she still talks of him as she did uh, nine years ago. Um, I wanted to end it also with uh, uh, Randall Sullivan coming out with the uh, paperback edition Maybe you could tell us something about that. Well, as I've said many times, I think Randall Sullivan's book is a great, um, uh, a great contribution to the literature on Michael Jackson. It's very, very dense and very detailed. Um, he didn't shy away from controversial conclusions or controversial subjects. And I thought he got a very bad rap when a bunch of idiots, in my opinion, organized a fraudulent campaign to to rack up negative reviews uh, on Amazon to hurt the book's sales. And because of that, you know, I gave a, a statement um, in, in support of the book, and I was asking fans to buy it and read it, and I was telling them to not listen to this fraudulent campaign where all of these, you know, book reviews were being lodged that uh, it, it, all you had to do was read them and you knew that the people never read the book. So 
he is now coming out with a paperback edition uh, with an update, and I have not seen the update. I did talk to him recently, and I still maintain that it's a very valuable book uh, that anyone who wants to understand the life of Michael Jackson really needs to read it and read it carefully and read the footnotes, which are as important as the, um, as, as the actual book. Um, and uh, I, I'd encourage people to, to buy the paperback and read it. I don't know what the update's going to say, but I'm looking forward to it. Oh, no question. Uh, it should be coming out, uh, I guess, sometime this month? That's my understanding, uh, in April. Yes. And uh, you... Um said something uh, about Justin Bieber's lawyer, Roy Black. I wanted to get your take on him. He's a fantastic lawyer. Roy Black is one of the best criminal defense lawyers in America. He is a brilliant lawyer. Uh, You may recall that he uh, defended William Kennedy Smith in the early 90s uh, very successfully. Uh, His client was acquitted of uh, charges of rape. And Roy is uh, very experienced, very bright, uh, very sensible, very clear thinker. He has a very simple, clear way of articulating concepts, and he's just a brilliant lawyer, and I, uh, I think very highly of. I think Justin Bieber chose a great lawyer. It'll be interesting to see what happens, and uh, we'll keep you up to date with the uh, Wade Robson. I think it's supposed to go to trial in June. That's what they say, so hopefully that will be shut down. Tom, we thank you so much for uh, joining us here tonight. Thanks for having me, and uh, I'm always honored to be on your show, and uh, best of luck. Okay. Have a good one, Tom. You too. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Uh, Of course, uh, go visit Luna Joe 67 She has uh, all the videos of uh, Tom Mesereau previously on King Jordan Radio. Uh, you could go to www.youtube.com slash user slash LunaJoe67. Of course, you can find me on Facebook at King Jordan Radio. Find me on Twitter at Mr. King Jordan. And you could find uh, the website at www. KingJordanSportsAndMedia.com. Take care, everybody. We'll speak to you next time here on King Jordan Radio. Uh oh, she just a tight ride. Trying to figure out how you could play a major part up in her life, right? Shorty got a mind tight. And every time you see her walk by, I'm thinking about your nightlife. She ought to send your eyesight. And every since the first day you seen her, thinking she the white type. You figure she'll be perfect loving you. Fantasize the single from her fingers rubbing you. Trying to analyze the situation. You feeling crazy. Want to there forever. What's so special about this lady? Feeling like you want to pull back. But you know you perfect for her. You got all of what them fools lack. Maybe you should make this thing happen. Brains and things swinging on the porch while the kids napping. You got everything else you need. Snatch her up still that empty face. She can make your life complete. All you got to do is walk away. Oh, yeah.